Good evening. It's time for another bedtime story with Thompson. We're reading The Oregon Trail by Francis Parkman. This is Chapter 6, On the Trail to Fort Laramie. On June 8th, we reached the usual crossing place on the south fork of the Platte. The channel of the river, almost on a level with the plain, was one great sand bed about a half mile wide. The average depth of the river here was not more than a foot and a half. On the other side was an emigrant camp, and a few horsemen waded across to visit us. Their faces were anxious and careworn, and with good cause. As one of them told us, Ever since we left the settlements, there's been nothing but trouble. Some of our folks died along the way. Pawnee's got one feller. One evening a week ago, we were camped by the Platte when 600 Sioux come down on us, whooping and hollering, and made off with our best horses. These they left ain't nothing but buzzard bait. And then, the night we got here, a guard fell asleep, and the wolves drove off 123 of our best cattle. We've been days hunting them. Don't know what we'll do if we don't find them. Worst part of the trip's still ahead. They would be forced to yoke cows and heifers to their wagons, and also to lighten the load. They would also have to leave behind a great part of their goods. I had seen many abandoned pieces of furniture, handsome furniture along the plat. Perhaps some of them had been bought, brought from England originally and packed in the family wagon for the endless journey to Oregon. Now, too heavy to carry farther, this handsome furniture lay bleaching and cracking on the hot prairie. For too long now, we had been annoyed with our English companions. They made decisions without consulting us. They frequently insisted on making camp when we had gone no more than 15 miles, thus slowing our progress when we wanted to speed it. I discussed this situation with Quincy, Henry, and Delorier, and we made a decision which I announced to Captain C. We have decided to push ahead on our own to Fort Laramie, I told him. We hope to reach the fort in four or five days of hard traveling. And so, before sunrise, the morning after we crossed the South Platte, we left the captain and his party with Kearsley's wagon train and rode off. Four days of traveling took us through country where the horses waded in sand over their hooves, where the sun scorched like fire, and where the air swarmed with sand flies and mosquitoes. On the morning of the fifth day, we were crossing a plain when something came into view. Buffalo? I asked Henry. Henry reined in his horse and peered across the prairie with his more practiced eye. Indians, he said. Old Smoke's Lodge is on the move, I believe. Come, let us go. And he galloped forward with me riding by his side. Before long, a black speck became visible on the prairie two miles off. It grew larger and larger, taking the form of a man and horse. Soon we could make out an Indian racing towards us at full gallop. Rider and steed bounded up to us, and with a sudden jerk of the rein, the Indian brought the wild panting horse to a full stop. We shook hands, as custom required. The Indian was a young fellow of the Sioux Nation. Like most of his people, he was nearly six feet tall, well-built, and graceful. He wore no paint, and his head was bare. His long hair was gathered in the back, and attached to it as a decoration and charm was a whistle made from the wingbone of the war eagle and a line of glittering brass plates. This was a heavy ornament, but very popular and stylish among the Sioux. The Indian's chest and arms were naked. The buffalo robe, worn over them when at rest, had fallen about his waist and was tied there by a belt. On his feet were gay moccasins. He carried a quiver, or arrow case, of dog skin at his back and a crude but powerful bow over his shoulder. His horse had no bridle, only a cord of hair lashed around the jaw. The saddle, 18 inches high at front and back, was made of wood covered with rawhide. 
We rode with him to the Indian camp at Horse Creek. There, Henry greeted a large, strong, nearly naked man. This was the chief, Old Smoke. Just behind him, his youngest and favorite squaw sat astride a fine mule, which was covered with whitened skins decorated with beads and little metal ornaments. The squaw had a spot of vermilion, a bright red paint, on each of her cheeks. In her hand, she proudly carried the chief's tall lance, upright. His round white shield hung at the side of her mule, and his pipe was slung at her back. Her deerskin clothes, made beautifully white by a kind of clay found on the prairie, was ornamented with beads and with long fringes at all the seams. Warriors, women, and children swarmed like bees over the camp. Hundreds of dogs of all sizes and colors ran restlessly about. The wide, shallow creek was alive with boys, girls, and young squaws, splashing, screaming, and laughing in the water. This was merely a temporary Indian camp, during the heat of the day, so no lodges were pitched, but the squaws of each lazy warrior had made him a shelter from the sun by stretching a few buffalo robes upon poles, and here he sat in the shade. Before him stood the badges of his rank as a warrior, his white bullhide shield, his medicine bundle, his bow and quiver, and his lance and his pipe raised aloft on a tripod of poles. Except for the dogs, the most active and noisiest tenants of the camp were the old women. They were as ugly as witches, with hair streaming loose in the wind and nothing but the tattered fragment of an old buffalo robe to hide their withered limbs. No longer favorites of their husbands, these old squaws performed the heaviest labors of the camp. They harnessed the horses, pitched the lodges, prepared the buffalo robes, and brought in meat for the hunters. With the cracked voices of these hags, the barking of dogs, the shouting and laughing of children and girls, and the lazy quiet of the warriors, the whole scene had an effect too lively and striking to be forgotten. After lunch, several Indians rode ahead with us. One of them, who must have weighed over 300 pounds, was called the Hog, because of his unusual size and certain features of his character. He straddled a little white pony that was hardly able to bear up under his enormous weight. The hog was not a chief. He never had enough ambition to become one. He was not a warrior or a hunter. He was too fat and lazy. But he was the richest man in the village. He owned over 30 horses, and the Sioux judged a man's wealth by the number of horses he owned. He had ten times more than he needed, yet still his appetite for horses could not be satisfied. Trotting up to me, the hog shook my hand and gave me to understand he was my true friend. Then, with his eyes twinkling out from behind the folds of flesh that almost hid them, he began a series of signs and gestures. I knew nothing then of Indian sign language, so I called to Henry. What is he saying? Henry watched and then smiled. Monsieur, he wishes to make a bargain. He will trade one of his daughters for your horse. Henry, I said, tell him no thank you. The hog saw my reply and, still laughing with the same good humor, gathered his robe about his shoulders and rode away. The next day, since we were only seven miles from Fort Laramie, we attempted to clean ourselves up. We had not shaved in six weeks, so we hung up small mirrors against the trees and did so. Then we bathed in the muddy waters of the Platte as best we could. There, exclaimed Quincy, we're ready to appear among Fort Laramie society. End of chapter six. Boy, that's some vivid pictures, huh? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the whole throwing out the furniture... Uh, when my ancestors came across from Pennsylvania to uh, later Iowa, they had to dump their furniture, too, in a, uh, a situation they got into in Indiana. Well, at the time, Indiana. But they kept the trees, and later it was named, they named the town after my great-aunt Ida's trees, Ida Grove, Iowa. That's all we have time for tonight. Good night. Good night, good night, good night, good night, good night.